Well, hello everyone. My name is Tim, uh, otherwise known as the husband of Shayna, or as Cav affectionately calls me, the husband of Tim's wife. So, that's me. Uh, <laughs> I'm on staff here with Chi Alpha, and uh, funnily enough, I used to be a student here too. Crazy. Yep, and I too, I too sat in these seats thinking I would never be a campus minister. And yet here I am. <laughs> so thanks, God. Yeah. Uh, no, but seriously, uh, I think, I really think that being a campus missionary is, is the best. And I think the reason for that is because I get to hang out with people like you. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just truly, it's truly an honor, um, yeah, to like be able to live life with this community that seeks to know God and make him known. And that is consistently sharpening each other. Um, so thank you for growing me and growing each other. I just appreciate that a lot. Another reason why I love uh, campus ministry or being a being a campus missionary uh, is because college ministry is just crazy strategic. Um, I don't know if you guys view yourselves this way, but if not, then let me be the first to tell you: you guys are world changers. Yeah, if you don't believe that, I'm telling you, it's true. Uh, you are the next generation of Jesus followers that are building God's kingdom wherever you go. And so if, if I could just encourage you, don't underestimate what God can and will do through your life and how he's training you even now while you're in college. So, uh, hard transition. Um, how many people in this room currently believe in Santa Claus? Okay. No, no, okay. So no one, okay. No one, okay. So, okay, who... Who here, show of hands, who here showed, yeah, show of hands, who believed in Santa Claus until they were about 10 years old? Okay, 11, keep them up, 12, 13, 14 years old, 14, what, 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 okay, is it 13, when, when did you like stop believing in Santa Claus? Okay, <laughs> anyways, uh, nice, okay, no shame, no shame. Uh, you know, something that I've noticed uh, is that, that we humans, you know, we, we kind of, we sometimes hold on to beliefs that really don't make a whole lot of sense, uh, and they, they actually, they turn into like superstitions more than anything else, right? And so while, while I might have stopped believing in Santa when I was five, uh, I still believed some interesting things about God about prayer, about life, that would certainly be considered superstitious. Um, I don't know if anyone can relate to this, uh, but I, I know I used to think that I had to say very specific words uh, in very specific orders in order for God to hear me. Anyone? Yeah? Okay. Uh, mind you, I, I might have intellectually acknowledged that, you know, God hears my prayers no matter what, um, but I still operated in a way that he didn't. Uh, and this wasn't just when I was five years old. This was up until, until college. Um, and I, I actually, I very clearly remember uh, learning to pray as a kid with my parents. We would like, we would just kneel on my, my bedside together. We would pray together every night before we went to bed. Um, and while my parents didn't actually say it, I subconsciously thought, oh, my, my prayers must only be heard if I kneel. And so when, when I was older and my parents stopped doing this like nighttime routine, uh, I found myself convinced that I could only talk to God while kneeling on my bed. Then... I started realizing that, oh, man, my parents pray before meals, and obviously their prayers are being answered. Uh, so maybe it was more of a word choice thing, and it certainly had to be out loud, or else, you know, God wouldn't hear it. 
And then so I started praying in my, in my bed, under my breath, of, out loud, of course, you know. Uh, and I even found myself doing this into college, and I found myself thinking that I have to pray something like three or four times for Jesus to hear me. Does anyone, like, relate to this at all? Yeah, yeah are, are we, we're kind of funny like that. Like, why, why do we, like, believe that? Like, why do we operate in that way? Because <laughs> yeah, logically, I can know that God is literally the creator of everything, that he knows and sees everything, that he's powerful enough to know my thoughts. And yet I found myself caught in a pattern of superstition, very clearly not based in, in the truth of the Bible. And so over time, uh, the Holy Spirit helped me take inventory of my beliefs. Uh, and further than that, he helped to weed out my superstitions. Anyone need help doing that? <laughs> yeah, we need some Holy Spirit help. Well, uh, if you are new with us, um, tonight we've been, yeah, we've been studying the book of Acts this quarter. And yeah, this is, the book of Acts is traditionally known as the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, you know, which makes some sense because it recounts the lives of the apostles and how they spread the gospel um, and throughout all of like Asia Minor and other places. And so, however, uh, many scholars, including my favorite Bible teacher, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, shout out Bible Project, uh, think that a more appropriate name for this, this book is the Acts of Jesus and the Spirit. Um, and so, yeah, if we, if, we look at t- if we look at what we've just went over in the past couple weeks, like two weeks ago, Taylor, he taught us a few words in Hebrew and Greek for spirit, breath, and wind. Do you remember what they were? What is the Hebrew word for spirit, breath, and wind? Ruach. It's good. And then the Greek word is pneuma. Nice. And then Taylor also taught us the Hebrew word for fire, which is pur. Nice. So let me ask you a question. Why do you think Taylor taught us these cool words other than to impress our friends and pastors back home? No reason? Well, uh, he actually taught us these words because these words demarcate, they mark out God's presence all over the Bible. We see this especially in the Old Testament where God appears to Moses in the burning bush, a small fire, and then there's a pillar of fire to guide the Israelites by night. That's a a little bit bigger of a fire. And then the whole Mount Sinai is on fire. That's a pretty big fire. And so clearly we see from the biblical authors, fire is represented, um, or fire represents God's presence. And so Luke, the author of this book, Acts, uh, he seems to know his Old Testament pretty well. He he seems to know his Bible pretty well. Uh, And so this is exactly how he describes God's presence, the Holy Spirit showing up at Pentecost in Acts 2. So you guys, if you guys remember, like God's spirit suddenly shows up as a wind and then something like flames appears over everyone's head and then they start speaking in languages they couldn't have known and other people understand them as praising God for what he's done. Like that's, that's like pretty remarkable stuff that's just happened. Um, and if, if we are just like carefully paying attention to these details, um, what, we'll, what we'll see is that all these things hyperlink us back to the Old Testament where God's fiery presence dwells in and fills the tabernacle and the temple. And so as as ancient Jews, we would have understood the temple to be the place where God dwelt, and the people would be like like us as ancient Jews, we would go to the priests who represented God and mediated God and people, or mediated between God and people, right? And so, and again, more, if we're familiar with the writings of the prophets, especially in Ezekiel and Haggai, these descriptions would also spark a connection to the prophetic promise of God's presence coming to live in the new temple of the messianic kingdom. 
So do you, do you see what Luke is communicating here by writing about what has happened at Pentecost? This is actually a bold message to his audience. Luke is communicating that the new temple, that this new temple that the, the prophets have been writing about and spoke about is really Jesus' new covenant family. It's us. Yeah, the Holy Spirit has, has built and started this, this outpouring of, of, his, of his spirit. Do you see how significantly important the Holy Spirit is in God's kingdom plan in forming the new temple? Well, the rest of this message tonight is about that, so hopefully you'll see the importance by the end of tonight. Um, so, again, we, so we see, this is just more recap, we see the Holy Spirit is poured out in Acts 2, and then how do we see the people respond to their new role as the new temple? Well, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing of meals, and to prayer, and every day they met together in the temple courts. And if you remember from a couple weeks ago, we see five main things that the early church embodies, which is prayer, worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission. Prayer, worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission. And last week, Melissa, she taught us about uh, Peter and John's excellent adventures. Do you remember this? Uh, Which is really them living their daily lives while looking for opportunities to share the power of the gospel. Uh, which in their daily stroll turned out to be healing a man who couldn't walk. And then Melissa continued to share about the life-changing effects that can happen from healing and what can happen when we learn to rely on God instead of our my monster. Do you remember that? Yeah. So picking up uh, Peter and John's story from last week, we're going to see more of how the early church responds to Jesus' death and resurrection, and more particularly, uh, how the Spirit of Jesus, a.k.a. the Holy Spirit, does this. Um, so Bible pastors, would you come on up, um, and would you, yeah, like raise your hand if you need a Bible tonight, um, they'll get you a Bible, and you can actually keep that Bible, it's our gift. Um, and yeah, so while we're flipping to Acts 4, I'll, I'll pray for us. Yeah, Jesus, thank you for this night, thank you, um, yeah, you're, you're here, you're here among us. So Lord, I pray that you just be speaking to us uh, through your word, and would you help us to further understand our role as being in your kingdom as the new temple? Um, and I just pray that you'd be honored tonight by our devotion to your word and to our, our, our worship to you. Would you change us, Holy Spirit? Amen. So let's flip to Acts 4.1. Um, and again, before we get to reading, I'll, I'll just let me, let me give some background information um, that it will be important for this text. Uh, so, okay, at this time, there are two main religious elites at this time in, in Jerusalem, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And both of these groups of people held different beliefs about certain theological topics, and a common debate um, among them uh, was about the resurrection from the dead and the afterlife. Uh, the Sadducees were staunchly opposed to this idea, and the Pharisees were staunchly in favor of this idea. Uh, so now uh, the entire religious elite have just witnessed or heard about a miracle, right, the lame man who just now walks, uh, that's taken place. Um, that this, la- yeah, this lame man is of, of 40 years, like almost a full lifetime in this period. He's now walking and praising God, and the people who seem to perform this miracle um, are claiming that there's a guy who is, who is raised from the dead who has given them power by God to do this. You see how this is going to be a little, <laughs> there's going to be some tension, right? Uh, so that's where we're at. Um, are you guys ready to dive in Acts 4? Okay, let me figure out how I'm going to do this. Acts 4, verse 1. 
Acts 4. Starting in verse 1. Yeah, it reads, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of them who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So after, after reading this, let me just ask you, how, how do you see the Holy Spirit leading Paul, or not Paul, Peter and John to establish the new temple? Or maybe better, how are they initially functioning as the new temple? Well, so here are a couple observations that I've made about Peter and John's experience with the Holy Spirit and how he was leading them um, in function as the new temple. So, for one, is that the Holy Spirit empowered Peter and John to speak boldly about Jesus, right? That's like, that's like the first thing that we see. Uh, we see, and actually what we see is this is a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So upon receiving the Holy Spirit, they become bolder in their words. And the, the religious elite even saw that they were unschooled and ordinary men, and yet here they were speaking boldly and articulately, articulately, nice, uh, with clear understanding. And as Melissa pointed out last week, this is clearly a very changed Peter, right? Who just 
like moments, not moments, but like very, what's the word? Recently, that's the word, yeah. Very recently, he's denying Jesus three times, and now he has this passionate devotion to truth. Yeah, do you, do you guys see that it's, it's actually not like a personality trait that only certain, certain individuals have that's like boldness? It's actually like, it's, like a, it's a Holy Spirit-given thing. You see how Luke is intentionally, like how he's intentionally highlighting how the Holy Spirit is transforming people. And it actually seems to me that it, it doesn't take much to be bold, but it's just simply being empowered and, and obeying. So number, the first thing I noticed was that the Holy Spirit empowered Peter and John to speak boldly about Jesus. And the second thing, um, in their function as the new temple, what they did is, is that the Holy Spirit really grew deep conviction in Peter and John. So after being threatened, uh, they respond with, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. I don't know about you guys, but that's, that is some serious, deep-seated conviction in them about their experiences. Are, are you a person of deep conviction? In 1 Thessalonians 1.4, it also says, for, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. So we see a, there's a clear correlation between the Holy Spirit and developing a deep conviction of truth. Have you ever thought of asking the Holy Spirit to build deep conviction in you? So let's hop back into our text tonight. Let's keep reading um, Acts 4, 23 through 31. It says, On the release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together um, against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place uh, where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Okay, what do you guys notice about, about what just happened here? Peter and John, they come back from prison, and they report to the community that they were just reprimanded, threatened, and commanded not to speak about Jesus. And how do the people respond? They pray, right? And what do they pray for? They pray for boldness. I mean, come on. <laughs> these, are, these are a changed people, right? They're, like, they're living radically as the new temple. Like they're, they're not praying just like some superstitious prayers like I did. So question for you guys. Do, do you see how the Holy Spirit grew their prayer life? Well, can I ask you, what do you tend to pray for? 
Do you, do you tend to pray for grades or your relationship or money or influence or to make life easier? No, I'm, I'm not saying that those are bad things to pray about, but I, I'm, just, I'm just wondering how we can be transformed by letting the biblical authors and their history even inform us in how, how we should be praying. So just as these people's prayer lives were influenced by the Holy Spirit, how could he influence our prayer life if we recognized our place as the new temple? So here, here I think are a few indications of a new temple-like thought process that I can see from their prayers. So the first one that I can see in, in this long prayer, that's actually the longest recorded prayer in Acts um, in the entire book. Um, and we see actually that they acknowledge God as sovereign and creator. Right? This, that's like one of the first things that they, they say. They say, sovereign Lord. You made the heavens and the earth, right? This, this identifies God as having authority and power over them. It's, it's really a prayer starting from a place of humility uh, before God. Because, because they know their place, right? Uh, they know God is God and we're not. Uh, they knew who was going to be in charge and who they needed. So that's the first thing that I notice is that they acknowledge God as, as sovereign and as their creator. The second thing I notice is they prayed scripture. You notice that they quote Psalm 2 in this, in this prayer. So it seems as they are, like, they're reading God's word and seeking to understand, understand it and how it applies to their lives. Have you developed a love for God's word? They pray scripture. That's what they did. And the third thing I noticed is that they asked God to show his power through them. It wasn't necessarily, it, it was partially like stretch out your healing hands, but it was also partially like speak through us, right? It wasn't just like God do this miracle, but like help us do that. They asked to partner with God. How cool is that? Yeah. Now, now don't get me wrong. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not saying this is the only way to pray. Um, but what I am saying is I think I, I just want us to, I want to encourage us, um, each of us t- tonight, to expand our prayer life, right? To, to pray for things of eternal importance rather than momentary things. To pray for character development rather than an easy fix or a good test grade. You know, to pray for healing rather than, a dis- than dismissing what God could do. I want to encourage us to expand our prayer life. I, I remember... Um, when I was a junior, um, this was like my, my first year as a student leader here with Kaiofa, and I remember my prayer life shifting. Um, I remember actually starting to pray for the music department. I was a music major, um, and I, I remember praying for God to bring change to some of the damaging culture that was present. I remember praying for people to recognize un- unhealthy habits in their lives, for people to become truth seekers, for my friends and classmates to be free from addiction. Um, in addition to my, my prayer life changing, I actually saw that my actions changed as well. And I, saw, I began seeing myself um, as, as the, this, this role, as, as the new temple everywhere I went. It was like a new understanding. I was, I was becoming more aware of the needs of the people in my core group as well. And that was including my co-facilitators. I mean, yeah, who here knows that facilitators need prayer too? Yeah. Yeah. So I, a question I have for you guys tonight um, what is one way that God wants you to expand your prayer life? What's one way or more? 
So as we continue on, uh, let's actually take a little step back, uh, like a, like a from this story, from these stories in Acts, with like a bird's eye view. Um, so last week we read Acts three, and we've now just read most of Acts four. Um, but if we if we actually look at Acts, at the end of Acts two, all the way through five, we see what's called a chiasm um, in the structure of this of these of this text. So what is a chiasm? You might ask. Anyone ask that question? Great question. Thank you. A chiasm uh, is a grammatical structure used to convey a point by sandwiching stories, words, or events around it. And so th- these, these stories, or words or events, they tend to have symmetrical or parallel ideas around the main point. Um, and so they usually appear in this format, A, B, C, B prime, A prime. So the main point is C. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah, so Luke is using this literary technique to make a big point to his audience. So let's, let's go to the next slide and see how this, this plays out. Um, we see the A section is in 246. It says, every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. That's A. Um, and that's 246. Yeah, 3, 1 through 422. It says, Peter... Basically, he heals a man, he teaches the community, and then he gets arrested and he gets tried before the Sanhedrin. And then we have the point C, uh, where it's, like, it's just a bunch of stories of Jesus' followers selling their possessions and giving to the poor. Then we have B prime that relates in, it's, it's symmetrical to B, where the apostles healed a bunch of people. They teach in the temple courts. They get arrested and tried before the Sanhedrin. And then A prime, uh, it says, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the, the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And man, guys, I, I, should, I just love this stuff because the more I read the Bible, the more I realize that the genius of these writers rivals very few, right? Like this is it's just another reason why I so strongly believe um, that, that we as Christians, we need to develop a love for God's word. You know, it's, and it's because without it, we would be missing so much about what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate through the biblical authors. So I just, I just love this stuff. Um, so yeah, if you were to actually just read these these chapters as like separate individual chunks, we would miss this main point that Luke is making here. Um, yeah, so you, when, you, when you read them as individual chunks, it actually it just seems like Luke is placing random stories in here. Um, but again, Jewish, like a Jewish audience, they would have understood this as the main, a C as the main point, because they actually know the laws in the Torah. So let's, let's read Deuteronomy four, uh, 15, 7 through 11. Um, yeah, Deuteronomy 15, 7. Uh, this reads, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year of canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you'll be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hands to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, 
I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So if we go back to the chiasm um, in point C, um, yeah, just keep point C in mind. This is like a bunch of stories of Jesus' followers selling their, their possessions to give to the needy and supporting them. So this was a practice that was supposed to be happening through the Jerusalem temple and its leadership. But it's clearly not happening. And this is actually what makes Luke's point so clear. It's, it's that the, the new temple of Jesus' community is actually the ones, they're the ones who are fulfilling the purpose God had always intended for the Jerusalem temple, which was to act as a place where heaven and earth meet and where people encounter God's generosity and healing presence. This is Luke's main point. Yeah, I'll say that again. The new temple of Jesus' community is fulfilling the purpose God had always intended for the Jerusalem temple, which was to act as a place where heaven and earth meet and where people encounter God's generosity and healing presence. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's like this, this definition of the word priest, right? A priest is a, a mediator between God and humans. And this is what Luke is communicating to us as the lifestyle we are, in, are intended to live as the new temple, to be mediators between God and people. Are you with me? Do you see how just reading these stories as individual chapters with no overlap or connection, if we did that, we would, it would cause us to miss this major point of the author. So let's, let's finish out chapter 4 um, tonight by, by reading verses 32 through 37. Um, and let's, let's actually watch Luke's main point come to life. Luke, uh, sorry, Acts 4. Um, yeah, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. All that there was, or, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Crazy, yeah. Like, do you see how they're operating as the new temple, right? They're functioning in this way that's, they're seeing life in this way of, of, a, of a place where we can, they can moderate and mediate between God and people, showing God's generosity and healing presence. Guys, what if we lived this way? What if we lived and, and gave generously to the people in our community and the people on the fringes of our community and the people outside of our community? What if we lived this way? What if we lived sacrificially with our time? What if we actually saw ourselves as Jesus sees us as the new temple? How would that change how we live? Yeah. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Um, I'm gonna, I'll close tonight with a story that I think demonstrates the sacrifice, generosity, and mission drive of a new temple lifestyle. Um, 
yeah, do you, you guys know how we tend to come to college with, with a dream job? Or at the very least, a, a hope to find a well-paying job? Yeah, that's something that's pretty universal for, for most college students. Uh, and do you also know that at certain colleges and with certain degrees, it's almost guaranteed that upon graduating and finding a job in their, in their fields, some graduates will just make a, quite a bit of money coming out of their first year graduating. Right? Um, and so this, this was the case uh, for a friend of Meredith's, actually, uh, who went to the University of Virginia, which is where she did her Kyle internship. And this friend of Meredith's was a part of, the, of their Chi Alpha throughout his time at UVA. Uh, and he was a sold-out follower of Jesus. He loved Jesus with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he strongly believed in discipleship. And he had developed a love for the mission of God. And upon graduating and knowing that he was going to be pretty much set for life because his, of his jobs that were lining up, or his job that was lining up, um, and because of his deep conviction that the mission of God is of vital importance, and because of his understanding of his role as the new temple, he decided that he was going to give as much as he could to missionaries. He decided to take the average salary of the place that he was living and give the rest of it, all of it, to support missionaries around the world. Like, do you guys, do you guys understand how radical, how much of a radical lifestyle that is? This, this kind of radical giving, sacrifice, and blessing that can can come from how we choose to live our, our lives as a new temple is, is what I think God is calling us towards, right? How is, how is God asking you to step into this new temple mindset and, li- mindset and lifestyle? I'll pray to close, and worship team, you can start. Jesus, I pray that you would help us as your community um, begin to understand our role as your new temple. Would you continue to shape us and grow our understanding of how you want us to live Um, to live sacrificially to to give to be a blessing to others to represent you to people yeah God I ask that you would change us change our thoughts would you rid us of some unhealthy ways of thinking about this life in this world we love you Jesus and we we praise all in your name